0: Thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Louise Fine back on the show with me. She was with us last year in episode 877. You might remember her book, Daughter of the Reich. What an amazing, fantastic book that was. And you know what? She absolutely topped that story with her new book, The Hidden Child, uh, which we're here to talk about today. What an amazing book. Um, and and I thoroughly enjoyed it, Louise, and I'm telling everyone that they need to go out and grab it. Uh, welcome back to the show.
2: Oh, thank you so much. And it's absolutely lovely to be back again um, on your show. And Oh, it feels like longer than a year, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. I
0: know. Uh, well, well, thank you for returning. And uh, when I, when I saw that you had a new book coming out, uh, I I just knew that we had to chat about it. Um, last year, we talked around May. It was it was late spring, and uh, you know it was a, a kind of a weird time. The you know <laughs> most of the world was was kind of shut down, and uh, a lot of people were. Um, you know, not knowing what the future was going to hold and, you know, what an odd time to release a book and daughter of the Reich, you know, came out in the midst of all of that. Um, and, and then y- you've gone on to, uh, you know, to bring out the hidden child, uh, and the world is, is kind of slowly getting back to, to a normal, um, but what was it like for you bringing out a book? I mean, just right in the, in the, the, the heat, Of the pandemic and then you know bringing out another book during this time Um, that had to be a crazy experience
2: (laughs) yeah honestly Hank it was um, it was a bit mad especially as it was my debut novel so I don't really have anything to compare it with to be honest Um, it it was a a strange time because bringing your first book out when all the bookshops were shut and, and you know the world was sort of felt like it was in freefall. So so to be complaining about your book coming out felt completely the wrong thing to <laughs> to do. So I just sort of went with the flow. And and actually, um, I mean, Daughter of the Reich has been so well received that I'm I'm super grateful. Um, and uh, yeah, we just hunkered down as I think everyone did. And, um, I got on with writing the next book, um, and focused on that. Um, I think that's all, all you can do really is focus on the day, um, when you're in a sort of crisis, like, like we've all been through. Um, and yeah, just, uh, just hunker down and got, got on with the job. Um, it wasn't easy. I had, uh, I was homeschooling my daughter um, so there were some late nights and some very early mornings um and to be honest I don't really remember writing this book but <laughs> most of it was written during during that first lockdown period so it, it somehow it got done
0: with with daughter of the Reich and now the hidden child you have really carved out a place for yourself in the in the literary world um, in, in writing these stories of historical fiction and and taking these true events and, and characters and um, situations and finding a way to tell a really compelling story um, around you. these events. What do you attribute your love of historical fiction to?
2: Well, I've always loved history. History's been a passion, and um, I actually... Did law at university, but if I had my time again, I would definitely study history. I think um, there's so much we can learn about our lives today through history, and I think that's what I try to explore through fiction. Um, and and what I love about historical fiction is that um, you can focus on on the lives that that don't really get covered in the history books um, and. There's, it's such a rich area. Um, I mean, we have the whole of, of history to, to pull on, but um, at the moment I've been focusing sort of on the early 20th century. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I suppose um, there's always resonances with today and I try to bring those those out in my novels.
0: As, as someone who has a love of history, um, is it ever a challenge to walk the fine line between historical fact and historical fiction? Um, I'm I'm amazed at people that can can write um, historical fiction that that feels absolutely true, uh, you know, down to the bones of the story. Um, are there any kind of uh, guidelines that you give yourself when writing a story of things that? Um, kind of goalposts that that you need to stay within or a framework um, that that keeps the – historical fiction is an interesting thing in that we – I mean, in the title of the genre, Fiction, um, we know that this is a made-up story, yet people will be very much sticklers about – sticking to to facts within fiction it's 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 an interesting i've always been fascinated with with how people um kind of keep one foot in in fact and one foot in fiction um what are some of the challenges for you in that
2: yeah i mean i i think it's a really interesting discussion um especially if you are writing fairly recent history there is a lot of information out there so it's very easy in a way to fact check (laughs) what what you've been writing about and i personally think that um we owe it to the times that we're writing about to have it as authentic as possible and i use the word authentic for a reason um because i think you can because it is fiction you can be a little bit flexible um but I think it should be true to the time if that makes sense um and almost the more that's known about it I feel you you really need to be almost more careful so you know if you were writing about history 2000 years ago it's perhaps easier to be more free with your imagination because there's less material out there about how day-to-day lives would would be Um, but even even that it's it's important to be um to be as authentic as possible um one area that is quite tricky is um obviously the sentiments that people have have changed over time so things that we find um sort of unpalatable today, um, and language, for for, for, a, for an example, um, there are certain words that people would have used, which today we find completely um, unacceptable. Um, there is a line that you have to sort of um, follow, I think, to be acceptable to a modern readership, whilst at the, t- at the same time to be um, fair to the time that you're writing about. Um, and yes, that is it. That is a that is a, a tightrope to walk along. Um, and I think if you're writing about real people, um, then you have to be even more careful, um, to get the facts right about those people. I have got, um, some real characters. They are minor characters in the hidden child. Um, but I have based a character on, um, on a real person, one of my main characters, but I have, for the reason that I have changed quite a lot about him changed his name. So he has a fictional name and that has given me more freedom to, um, change things
0: about him. I, I can only imagine what that uh, struggle, especially with language, um, mm-hmm. has to be like because in in Daughter of the Reich and The Hidden Child you're dealing with topics that are, are very touchy to our yeah. modern sensibilities and I would imagine the language uh, around both of those uh, situations can be very offensive to A Mm -hmm. modern reader. Um, The the challenge there, I would think, is that if you are not true to the language, we run the risk of of sort of whitewashing history and and making history in our present image, if you want to look at it that way. Yes. And and then when when people start reading it, they get uh, the wrong impression about history. Um, are, Are those things that 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 you uh, struggle with and, and it, does that, do those things change when you go through the editing process to, um, you know, uh, do you temper some language or uh, like, how how do you maintain the, um, the historicity of it without being offensive? And that, that has to be a challenge.
2: It, it, yes. I mean, it is a challenge. And if I was completely true to history, then the story would have been, Rather different to the one that I've written, and um, and I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but um, you know it, it would have been probably a much bleaker story than it is. Right. Um, and um, so, in one sense, I have used some sort of liberties in, in that way, um, but as far as much as I can, I try to be authentic to the times and. Um, uh, I have tempered some of it, but I still think mod- some modern readers might find some of it quite unpalatable. Um, but exactly as you say, I, I feel it's important um, because it's it's very easy for um, us to be lulled into a sense of security about our modern times, and to think that we can't go backwards, and I think we can. Um, So I think it's always good to have an eye on what's happened in the past, um, so that we are aware of how we behave towards one another going forward. and whilst I think people may think, oh, this, the, you know, this, these attitudes—they were a hundred years ago. Some of it still persists. Some of the stigmas around um, the conditions I've written about in my book—they they still exist. And some of the language is still in our language today. Um, and so that's why I feel it's it's important to err on the side of, okay, it may offend some people, but it's it's reality, um, and I don't want to
0: whitewash history. Sure. Um, Louise, I'm fairly confident that you were not alive in 1929. Um, <laughs> but in the same way that we visit a museum and we have a, a tour guide who will guide us through the different exhibits and explain um, what we're looking at and give us some backstory and some history of, of things, um, you f- fill that role uh, in in guiding us through this, you know, time nearly 100 years ago, and you fill in um, the story with uh, with background information and descriptions of the fashion and um, the the way people behave and the, the way they talk with one another and the way they dress and the, the sounds and the smells and all of that, that that bring us into the story. Um, how do you prepare yourself? to describe the early 20th century, uh, you know, to the reader in a believable way? What what things do you do to familiarise yourself with it so that you can then, you know, be the tour guide for us?
2: <laughs> well, thank you. First of all, I'm glad that's that's how you feel about it. Um, I do a lot of research. Um, so uh, that includes um, obviously reading a lot of books um fiction and non-fiction um books written at the time um and I also um look at old photographs um and uh just visual images are are really useful um there's even film clips from from that period which which have been helpful as well. Um, listen to the music, um, look at old recipe books from the times, look at what cocktails they were drinking, just literally every aspect of of, of life. Um, because obviously they're experiencing it in the round. Um, And in terms of research, I also was very fortunate that I did a lot of the research for this book before lockdown. Um, So I was able to visit um, archives and, I went to um, a school that was once an epilepsy colony and they opened their archives for me and I was able to walk around and really get a feel for the place and um that, that was incredibly useful. I think I would have struggled had I not done all that preparation work beforehand. Um I think I think for me as a as a writer, I'm quite a a visual person. So going to the places that I write about is, is really helpful for me. Um, and if I can't do that, I, I sort of struggle a little bit. So I was really grateful that I'd been able to do that.
0: Dabble is a proud sponsor of Author Stories. Dabble is an easy to use cloud-based writing tool that gives writers a way to organize, plot and create amazing stories wherever they are. Write in our desktop app, on your Mac or Windows computer, tablet, or mobile device. Dabble syncs your latest version with the cloud on all your devices. Write anywhere and anytime inspiration strikes. We got you. Dabble is my preferred writing tool, and I think it will be yours as well. Visit DabbleWriter.com for your free trial you have an amazing story idea. You execute the writing and editing flawlessly, and now the only thing missing are readers. We can help you go from author to author superhero with Story Origin. Story Origin is a one-stop shop for marketing tools with a community of amazing authors working together to find reviewers, build mailing lists, increase sales, and collect feedback from beta readers. Everything an author needs all in one place, from providing review copies or beta copies, reader magnets to ensure you stay connected with readers, easily distribute audio promo codes, universal retail links to send readers directly to the proper point of purchase, or provide direct download links for members of your mailing list. Story Origin has all the tools you need in one easy-to-use site. Use the promo code ASP21 at checkout when subscribing to the yearly plan and you will get 10% off your first year. This code will expire December 31st, so hurry over and subscribe now. StoryOriginApp.com With Daughter of the Reich and now The Hidden Child, it it seems to me um, that that it, it looks like that you maybe begin with a big idea. Um, that you want to explore and then um, look at how characters might have behaved in the midst of that um, for the hidden child what what was that big idea that you um, first started exploring
2: yeah that's exactly right um, so uh, I I usually start with a theme and um, in this case it was about um, well it was a mixture it was about Sort of disability and it was about um the eugenics movement um, which when i was researching for daughter of the reich i had always associated eugenics with nazi germany and um, i had been quite surprised to find just how widespread it was um, not just in europe but in the us in in, in england to a great extent and Um, That sort of fascinated me because it feels like it's been rather brushed under the carpet. Um, I also love writing about times of social change. So the 1920s was was a really, um, really big time of change, not only um, sort of politically, socially, um, in terms of women's rights. um, And that all fed into a sort of mealy, (laughs) as it were, which mixed with the, the concept of eugenics, um, was what sparked, you know, I wanted to base the story around that.
0: So for, for people that might not be familiar, what was the idea of eugenics? And, and, um, you know, like with, with most things that, that go horribly awry, um, there, there might be um, a, a kernel of an idea that, that begins as someone trying to do the right thing for all of society. And, and we, we, we learn a lot of times that that is a misguided idea and, and, you know, not at all born out of, born out to be a good idea. Um, but what, what was that, that initial thing that, that eugenics began as, and what, what was, what, what did people hope to accomplish with it?
2: Yeah. So, um, eugenics really came from, um, Darwinism and the concept of survival of the fittest. Um, and, um, Darwin's cousin, um, a a chap named Galton, um, he, uh, really used the concepts in farm animals and racehorses to breed, um, a stock that was more useful for for what they were intended for um so longer leaner um well-muscled racehorses would obviously run faster etc etc um and the idea was sort of taken into into the human kind by um believing that we could um and and in a, in a, in a, in, a, in a, essence, it almost sounds like a good idea. Um, it, it, the idea that if you um, you can breed a better population of humans, if you sort of um, can get rid of uh, hereditary diseases, um, they also believed you could get rid of, um, you know, less uh, ideal characteristics such as um, criminality, uh, alcoholism, um, the sort of the undeserving poor uh, in in the UK, it was very much based around class. Um, there was a feeling that there were underclasses in the UK that were breeding at a faster rate than the sort of middle classes and the upper classes who they considered to be more intelligent. Um, and in the US and uh, later in Germany, it was it was quite racist based, um, and there was a if we bear in mind, I'm not defending it at all. It's an abhorrent idea. It became, sure. um, but if we remember that, um, people were feeling very, um, fragile in, in the 1920s, um, they, uh, after the first world war, there was a small period when, um, you know, there was a bit of a boom in Europe, but then that quickly went away. And, um, People became very uh, um, poor. There was there was so much unemployment, um, and the Russian Revolution wasn't very long ago. Communism was rising all around Europe. They um, there were planned economies um, coming into into play, and a lot of people believed that planning an economy, planning society, was actually the the best route to the survival of democracy. People really felt democracy was under threat. Um, and there are some parallels. <laughs> I think we can we can sort of see that that we, you know, there's there's some feeling that certain ways of life are under threat um from malign forces coming from the outside. And on the background of that fear, um these ideas began to To circulate
0: and gain um attraction so louise with um by exploring the um the misguided deeds of the past and and we'll we'll just be kind when (laughs) when we're (laughs) describing it um and uh it's there's the temptation to to draw parallels with things going on in the present world and and i think it's completely fair to do so um, but in in writing, do you, do you ever find yourself being a little on the nose with your comparisons of of modern times? And um, how do you um, I, I guess what I'm what I'm trying to ask is how do you um, not let your writing become preachy um, mm-hmm. w- when dealing with you know parallels to our modern life? And, and allow people to draw their own uh, – because you do it very well. It, it doesn't come across as – you know, uh, like you're, you're beating us over the head with, you know, make sure we're not. not doing this today. <laughs> yeah. You absolutely yeah. don't do that. But, but I think we all have read stories where that does happen. And, mm. and you just kind of roll your eyes and groan a little bit and say, well, I'm, you know, I, I, I get what she's trying to say here. Um, you, How do you, how do you avoid those things Um, to, to allow the reader to come to their own conclusions and, And so that, you know, the um, the point that you're trying to make does get made without feeling like it's just being forced on someone.
2: Yeah, I think um, I I am very conscious of that. And I think um, I always keep in my mind that actually I've done all the research and that is the background. So when I actually sit down to write, it's the story that's that's. key and the characters that are key they are the most important things and so i really just um i really just focus on um you know what what would that character be doing in that in that circumstance at that time um and so i just enter the world of that character and i think that's the way to keep it um To keep it as as it should be, if that makes sense, Um, and and, and not a sort of history lesson or, or as you say, a a preachy thing.
0: So, with uh, you can tackle all the heady uh, topics that you want and um, make uh, you know display the history uh, in a way that uh, that kind of comes off as bullet points, but until those things are couched in. In the story of people and people that we care about, um, mm. that's when the story really comes alive. And so you you introduce us to Eleanor and and Edward, and then their their charming little daughter Mabel. Um, tell me where they came from and how they factor into this world.
2: Yeah, I, do you know, I'd love to tell you where all my characters come from, but I'm not entirely sure. They tend to write themselves. <laughs> um, so. Um, Edward, as I explained, is very loosely based on a real character called Sir Cyril Burt. And he was um, a very keen eugenicist who lived in England um, at the time that my character Edward did. And um, he was a psychologist and um, a keen educationalist. Um, and he brought into into the country a system called the 11 plus exam. Um, So at the age of 11, all children um, would take an exam, um, which would then essentially decide their future. So the top percentage would go to grammar school, and the other children would go to um, just a secondary modern school, uh, where they would do more sort of um, less academic subjects and the grammar school children would be the ones to go on to university and to become the sort of the the future leaders and and get the better jobs Um, and those who went to secondary modern school would become the sort of the workers um, in that sense Um, and his uh, he died in the early 1970s and after he died um some of his research techniques were were, um, really brought into question. Um, There is a rumour which has never been specifically proven because he was not alive. So um, I have to say alleged um, misconduct in that he carried out various studies where um, it looks as though he invented data um, to back up his theories. Um, and that the concept behind his grammar school system was that um, children from the middle classes and, the, and the, the sort of the upper echelons of society would go to the to the grammar schools and the children from poorer backgrounds would go to um to the the lower schools um in fact that slightly backfired because of course lots of children who were from board backgrounds did get into grammar schools and it changed their lives um but the the idea behind it was that it would sort of keep people in their in their classes Um, so so i was quite surprised when i read um a lot of the 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 material that he had written um which was actually horrific to read um because he believed that intelligence was was um very much inherited and that you you no amount of education could change um could change that fact. Um, so my character is is based on on this person, um, and I've given him a backstory um, which isn't the real one. Um, but I loved writing him because I found it I find it fascinating to understand why people have some reprehensible ideas. So I found it really interesting writing him. Um, Eleanor, is very much a woman of her time. Um, She is, you know, a a good wife and mother, um, but she undergoes a transformation during this, um, during the the story because she uh, learns to find her feet really and to fight for her child. Um, So basically, this is a couple who are very wealthy, very influential, um, and they both support for different reasons, the eugenics movement, um, until their own child develops um, a, a condition of uh, epilepsy, and then obviously their whole world begins to collapse around them.
0: It, it's always interesting to me that um, when when someone takes such a dramatic stand about something, until it sort of invades their world, and then it becomes personal to them, and and then. Mm, Maybe I don't believe what I thought I believed.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: um, Louise, you, you write about this topic so passionately. Um, did did you feel a personal connection to the story and to this topic?
2: Yeah, so um, the the part of the reason why the child um, has epilepsy is because my own uh, youngest daughter had um, a severe seizure disorder when she was tiny. Um, And she was having, uh, on average, 70 seizures a day um, for over a year before um, they came under control. And so it was obviously a topic close to my heart. Um, We experienced some stigma at the time. um, And so i think that story had always was going to come out in one shape or another um my daughter actually is now a teenager and she's doing exceedingly well and she's amazing um she's exceeded all our expectations um but had she been born a hundred years ago her outlook would have been entirely different and she would have been um put into um, epilepsy colony where she would have been probably left for the rest of her life Um, and so yeah i I was just fascinated by um the idea of telling a story which i don't think is 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 that well known i mean a lot of people have never heard of epilepsy colonies um and, and i felt that 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 was a story that needed to be told
0: I'm so happy that your daughter is uh, is doing so well with the condition, um, and 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 what a great catalyst uh, for for a story like that. Um, the hidden child is available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, you can go grab it at your local bookstore, or we're gonna have links in the show notes where you can pick it up in kindle edition or hardcover or Audiobook. um louise if if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're doing where can they find you online
2: yeah so i have a website uh which is www.louisefine.co.uk OK, I think it is or com. I can't remember. Anyway, if you Google me, you'll find me. Um, I'm also on Twitter um, at Fine Louise. I'm on Instagram and uh, on Facebook, um, just Louise Fine author. Um, so I'm yeah, I'm pretty much everywhere.
0: Excellent. The Hidden Child available everywhere now when you're hearing this. This is a must have for your uh to to keep beside your favorite reading chair you're gonna love it um louise thank you so much for taking time to come back on the show
2: oh thank you so much hank it's been an absolute pleasure
0: now stay tuned for an audiobook excerpt from richard Gleave's the jason crane series
1: jason yanked the coils of safety rope to one shoulder and heaved them out the attic window the bundle bounced over the roof line and dropped to the yard below he tightened the harness making sure the shoulder straps were snug over his sweatshirt. He threaded his rope through the braking device, tested it, and clipped everything to the carabiner at his navel. So far, so good. Fireman Mike would be proud. His stomach flipped as he neared the octagonal window. Had he tied the correct knots? Would he get himself killed? Weeks had passed since Mike's tutorial and... But he had to attempt the break-in now, while both Van Brunt's were at the Christmas Eve service. He swung his legs through the window and felt for the roof. His sneakers gripped the shingles and he wriggled out, grateful for once to have feet as big as snowshoes. He pulled on a ski mask and sang, Spider-Man, Spider-Man, does whatever a spider can. He lowered his body. Wind punched him in the jaw like a supervillain, surprising him. His sweatshirt rode up and snow burrowed into his navel. He looked down but couldn't see his feet. He relaxed his hands and put a few ounces of weight on the rope. Clots of snow broke away, dove over the edge, and took far too long to hit ground. He drew his rope around the pipe and pulled tight. Now he could drop. No, you will not drop, you will repel. You will repel very safely. He backed towards the edge, towards the point of no return. The backyard lurched into view. It was a four-story fall, and he'd probably hit the stairs on the way down. He sledded helplessly. His legs fell, swung, and kicked the side of the house. Alarm bells went off in his head. He gripped the rope. It looked like nothing, a shoelace. Jason Crane, you're a damn fool. He went limp and fell over. The rope gave a jolt, and the harness tried to castrate him. He twisted, trying to save his poor descendants. He began to spin. His arm bashed through a row of icicles. The spin slowed, reversed, and at last he came to a stop with his back to the house, dangling over the backyard. Thank you, rope. That's a good rope. Well done. He tried to turn around, but couldn't. With patience, he worked out a method of kicking in circles and managed to press his sneakers to the side of the house. He needed slack. He gathered his loose rope to the small of his back and disengaged the brake. Zip! He fell fast, all his weight on the rope now. His feet, planted, shot up over his head. The brake caught him and the rope vibrated as wildly as a guitar string striking a note of panic. Jason heard a crunching sound and looked up. The leaf gutter crumpled and poured a stream of bitter ice water into his eyes. He snarled and wiped his face, dripping humiliation. Jason rested a moment and stared at his reflection in the glass. He was an enormous Macy's balloon drifting over New Jersey, tethered at the navel like underdog. How the hell did you get up here, kid? He did an awkward split, one foot above the window and the other below, hanging sideways with his weight on one hip. He closed his eyes and reached for the sill, crouching against the side of the house. His fingernails found the weather stripping, and he tugged locked. He cursed and tugged again, anger rising. He grabbed the frame with both hands and pulled with all his spider strength. Something popped. The window rose and the curtains splashed out. Jason dove headfirst into the fabric, wriggled and kicked, let out some rope and fell with a whomp into his arch enemy's lair.